the last major drug trafficker, a man came, called El Loco Barrera, he's captured in 2012. And there's this video of him being brought back and he's talking to the police. He's telling the police, guys, you think it's over with me? It's not. If you don't take down Otoniel, hundreds and hundreds of more people are going to die. And he says clearly, that man's an animal. Boss, he doesn't deserve to live. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. It's been described as the biggest blow against the Colombian drug cartels since the famous takedown of Pablo Escobar in the 1990s. Seven years since he was declared an enemy of the state and the boss of the so-called Gulf Cartel, notorious kingpin Dario Antonio Usaga, a.k.a. Otoniel, was finally captured last week in his jungle hideout. But who is the 50-year-old who has been flooding the US with drugs? And what effects will his arrest have on the world's biggest cocaine producer? Today, I'm talking to journalist and author Toby Muse about the strange cartel boss who features in his book, Kilo. He tells me about the background of the billionaire warlord with a penchant for young girls. His rise to the top of Colombia's drug ladder his use of black magic rituals to protect his shipments, and his bleak future in a US jail. This is Crime World Extra, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Well, Toby, maybe actually we'll start with Shadow, poor Shadow, and the bounty that was put on his head. Tell me about Shadow and what happened to him. So Shadow was this German shepherd, this really... Uh, this sniffer dog for the Colombian police. And she became famous with the Colombian police working in these Caribbean ports. And she was just so good at detecting drugs. I saw her, she's this very playful, you know, like a German shepherd, but very smart. So she enrages Otoniel, the head of this Gulf clan cartel, because she finds $30 million worth of drugs in this one shipment He's so annoyed, the Colombian police say that over interceptions, they hear the order has been given to assassinate this dog. Otoniel offers $7,000 to his men if they can prove that they've killed Shadow. So the Colombian police hear this, they immediately go into like DEFCON 4. They get Shadow out in this major operation to evacuate her from the Caribbean coast put her into the headquarters in Bogota, where she lives under constant police guard to make sure she doesn't get assassinated by this lunatic, Otoniel. Bloody hell. So that explains the kind of character we're talking about. Otoniel and this side of the uh, the Atlantic, we, you know, depending on where you get your news, there was mixed headlines and views about his arrest. Um some were saying it was the biggest arrest since Pablo Escobar. In fact, I think most were agreed about that. Um, but there was a sort of debate about whether or not it's actually going to make any significant impact um, on the, the cocaine problem in Colombia. But let's start with Otoniel, uh, Dario Antonio Yusuga. Uh, maybe you could tell me who he is. Yeah, it's a weird one. In fact, it's not even Dario, it's Dairo, which is a word I had ever hardly ever heard. And shamefully, 
I got the name wrong in my book. Yeah, there's nothing more embarrassing than seeing a typo in your own book. His name is Dairo Antonio Usaga. So he's this 50-year-old. He's been the head of this, the largest cartel still in existence in Colombia, and he's the largest drug trafficker. He was just busted by the police after this decade long of being on the run, really. But it really intensified in the last six years. There was this announcement of this major operation called Operation Agamemnon, named after one of those Greek figures. I think he was the one who was killed by his family or something after coming back from the Trojan War. But I'm sure one of your more educated listeners will correct me when I'm wrong on this. But so they spend six years and there's like hundreds of people that are arrested and killed. Over 100 soldiers and police are killed over these six years in these all of these operations. Finally, they track Otoniel down. And now it's kind of, well, to jump ahead, as you said, the Colombian president himself, Ivan Duque, is going through a bad time. It's basically everyone kind of agrees under his government, the security situation has got worse. Cocaine production continues to rise. There's more cocaine being produced than ever before. So he really needs a victory. He's the one saying, this is the biggest bust this century, the biggest bust since, as you said, Pablo Escobar. But as you say, the question is, okay, what does that mean? It's time to take a step back and look at this kingpin strategy they've been employing from the beginning, from Pablo Escobar killed in 1993. Then you go after the heads of the Cali cartel, the Rodriguez Ojuela brothers. Then you go after the heads of the office of Envigado, all of these different cartels. And finally, okay, we take down Otoniel. So let's say we've had 30, 40 years of this policy. What do we have to show for it? More cocaine than ever before. We are in the golden age of cocaine. So I think this is a moment for the drug warriors to say, okay, guys, you've had everything you wanted. You promised us when you took down this kingpin, things would change. Let's put that to the test. And if in six months there isn't a significant disruption to cocaine production and trafficking or 12 months, but let's all agree we're going to come back and look at this again. And if there hasn't been that disruption, maybe it's time to think about a different policy. Now, would Otoniel be uh, seen as as powerful as Escobar was in the 80s and into the early 90s before he was killed? Is he that level, that big a kind of player on the drug scene? Well, Ivan Ivan Duque took a lot of fire for that with people who lived through the war that Escobar had really declared on Colombia and people just saying, slow down, because the destruction the mass violence Escobar unleashed on Colombia. It really was a war on the government and the country. Escobar, some of the things Escobar did was, I mean, we don't even know how many police were killed by Escobar in the city of Medellin when he just announced a bounty on every copper's head. I have friends who grew up in those times and there are stories of policemen having all of the lights turned off in their homes because their own colleagues have come knocking on the door. And they're terrified that the police are going to kill other police and then go claim that reward from Escobar. That's the level of instability. Escobar's assassins are accused of bringing a plane out of the sky. Now, it's not clear if that happened, but other attacks he did, he set off a bomb at the center of the secret police's headquarters. It just rampant bombs all across, too many to even count. Otoniel was not responsible for that level of violence. I don't want to minimize him. He was the largest drug trafficker. But he just wasn't seeking that direct confrontation with Colombian society. He was this drug trafficker in his part of the country, which is the north. 
northwestern corner right next to the border with Panama. That was his home base where he was actually captured at the end. His tentacles go all across Colombia, but it's a kind of diffuse network. He's not that He's not that figure of uh, Pablo Escobar. Yeah, Escobar seemed to lash out at society and the state, you know, thrashing about and, and just attacking absolutely anything he can. This guy, Otoniel, from what I can see of him, he seems to be more of a soldier. Is he is he coming up from the from all the wars that are there in Colombia that have been going on for fifty years? Is he is he coming out of that place? Absolutely. And just to finish your thought on Escobar, Escobar was seen by the rest of the cocaine industry as such a rabid dog that they ended up unifying against him. Why? Because everything is forgivable except to stop the industry of cocaine itself. Escobar was lashing out so much, he was disrupting shipments. That is unforgivable. And that's when the other traffickers just said, Escobar's got to go. I don't care if he threatens my family. This is war now. And you're very right. Otoniel comes out of something different. And that's been the evolution of the cocaine industry. And in broad strokes, you've got Escobar sitting on top of the Medellin cartel. These are drug traffickers. Then what happens is the cocaine industry either gets, however you want to see it, absorbed by the civil war or takes over the civil war. And in particular, I'm thinking about the participation of the Marxist revolutionaries of the FARC, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, who started taxing the cocaine industry and their enemies, the far-right death squads, the AUC, as they were called, the self-defense forces. These were set out to to carry out a dirty war against the Marxist guerrilla civilian base. These were the ones who carried out those notorious massacres. And so these armies in uniform start becoming the central players in the cocaine trade. And they fight over cocaine in order to to kind of um, to fund their side. And they kind of squeeze the old style cartels kind of out of business. And Otoniel does come out of the far right death squad. He serves his time in there. There's a just a, a peace process with the far right death squad in around 2005. It was universally criticized by everyone except the government of the time because all it did was it took, say, two dozen, three dozen, four dozen of the most senior figures kind of had them face not even a trial, really, but a kind of truth commission, but really toothless, and then sent all of the mid-range commanders back home with a promise not to do it. The mid-range commanders were the ones who had actually carried out the massacres. They were the ones who were on that beach stacking tons of tons of cocaine in the speedboats. These were the guys who knew how it actually worked. They weren't given orders. They were doing it. Otoniel was one of those men, along with his brother. So these are the original two leaders of the latest variation of this cartel, Otoniel and his brother Giovanni. Giovanni is killed in a police operation, I think 2012, in a New Year's Eve party. And it's be- up to that point, the Gulf clan cartel hadn't really been a national household name. But what happens is interesting. After, Oton- after Giovanni's death, Otoniel becomes the sole leader of the clan. And he says, I'm going to make the government pay. So he institutes something called an armed strike. In his zone, which is more around the Caribbean coast, he demands that no one's on the street. This is going to be a moment of respect for his dead brother. Anyone is seen on the street, they're going to be killed. 
I've been there for one of those when he's declared these periodic arms strikes. It's ghost town. It's an absolute ghost town. And in fact, his men rove around kind of causing havoc. I was doing a story. This armed strike came out of nowhere. I was in the hotel and they threw grenades at the end of the block of where my hotel was. I missed this because I was actually having a nap. I had been working very hard, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to my no credit. journalist should ever admit that. <laughs> you can't, you can't learn this nose for news in journalism school. I tell, I'm telling you, you know this kind of finger on the pulse of news. Anyway, I missed it. But we were with the police later that day, and the police were just in this state of shock. They couldn't, they could because they were being attacked all in this region or all across this region. It wasn't nationwide, um, and it wasn't in the big cities. These are the small towns that he was able to control. Now, is he somebody who is into the flash? Do you know anything about him personally? Is he married? He's obviously, you know, political kind of a type of a character and a, you know, a blood brother bond with, with, the, with the, the brother who was killed, um, demanding respect, all those kind of aspects maybe of other large cartel um, bosses, but is there anything particular about him? Where's his weakness? Is it women or does he use coke himself? So I'm glad you brought this up because even amongst um, even amongst drug traffickers, this cartel was seen as something deeper and darker, really coming out of this area that he comes out of. This place is called Uraba. And just to give you an idea of how abandoned this zone is, it's the... Um, Part of this zone is the Darien Gap. There is the Pan American Highway, which I believe can take you all the way from Alaska, driving all the way down to Chile. There's one spot where the Pan American Highway has not been able to be built. That is through this jungle of the Darien Gap. That's how impenetrable that jungle is. This is where Otoniel comes out of. It's uh, where there are plantations, it's bananas, which in Latin America has always been a very very strange, brutal dynamic. There's something about the fact of, I can't put my finger on it, but there's something about the fact of like kind of strong men who need to be strong. You're taking off these bananas. You don't need to have any education and that you're immediately replaceable means that it's the most brutal work dynamic between employer and employee. And we've seen that in Colombia already. There was a massacre of banana workers in the 20s. Whenever you're talking about those coups in Central America, often it was a banana company may have been involved. There's something about bananas that brings out this kind of savagery. I don't know how to put my finger on it. Otoniel comes out of this area. Otoniel is heavily into witchcraft. That's the kind of jungle stuff, you know, that's, that he's really into this. He has his own witches. They're casting spells to protect. He has his own witches, Toby. Has his own witches. Absolutely. He has his own witches who will cast spells to protect him and also kind of black magic. I mean, it's not Harry Potter kind of stuff, you know. It's, this is weird black magic. One of the spells they do is, I interviewed in my book a witch, and he did this spell, which is it's kind of unpleasant because they have to kill a cat, and they take a cat's bone. They kind of crush it up. That's part of the spell. With this dust, they then add that in and around the cocaine shipment. And what that's supposed to me is it's supposed to turn invisible. It's not invisible as in invisible, ta-da, it's gone. But it just means that when it's in the port... It's protected or whatever. Exactly. The man, the policeman just won't look at it twice. And that's the spells. And so Otoniel was deep into this stuff. 
There was another side to him that is really very unpleasant. There was a culture in this cartel of really going after underage girls. That was something that him and his brother just in light. And there's these really heartbreaking stories of families not only receiving money for their young daughters, but also families taking their daughters to him. And one kind of, I mean, well, anyway, one of the reasons that his brother Giovanni ends up dead is that one of these girls he had raped becomes a police informant and ends up leading the police to Giovanni's New Year's Eve party where they ambush him and they kill him. But this was Otoniel's uh, taste. And before Otoniel became a household name, the last major drug trafficker, a man called El Loco Barrera, he's captured in 2012. And there's this video of him being brought back to video on a plane. And he's talking to the police. It's a police plane. And the video is clearly there. And he's, he's telling the police, guys, you think it's over with me. It's not. If you don't take down Otoniel, hundreds and hundreds of more people are going to die. And he says clearly, that man's an animal. Boss, he doesn't deserve to live. This is a drug trafficker telling the police this. And so even by drug trafficker standards, when you go to a place like Medellin, the drug traffickers of today, you know, they like, they like suits, they like fast cars, they like model girlfriends, actresses. Otoniel, Otoniel's life was pure countryside. And this is one of the ironies of this handshake with the devil that getting into the cocaine trade can be. Otoniel could be worth hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. But what was his life like as the CIA, the police, the army were chasing him? We understand his life was on the back of a donkey going from shed to shed in one of the rainiest parts of the world. That's Uruba. That was his life. And so it's this kind of, all right, the irony of cocaine. Yeah, in theory, you've got billions. But this is what you're living like. You're living like the most miserable of farmers. Well, maybe you've got a Rolex on your wrist. But, you know... That was his life. Now, it took seven years uh, to complete his capture, basically, which is, I think, around the same amount of time it took for them to catch Escobar. Um, what were they doing in that time? You talked about the impenetrable jungle to me before and how difficult it is uh, for anybody, any outsiders at all, to uh, even land helicopters in it. So how were they going about trying to capture him? I mean, they were trying their best. The police were trying their best. But again, that he controlled this zone. As you say, people, trained people can hear a helicopter coming minutes and minutes away. Then you're off into the jungle. Well, if you can't land your helicopter or you get up thigh high in mud, you can't run after the guy. These guys know the jungle more than anyone. And also, I think they probably had a lot of the locals either on the payroll or scared so there were these kind of rings of security. Some would just be civilian. Others would be actually armed guards. We think on the day that Otoniel was captured, there were eight rings of security. Now, there is an ongoing question about was there some sort of negotiated surrender? This is ongoing because when Otoniel becomes the largest drug trafficker in Colombia, his cartel is the top. He puts out, this often happens, when you reach the top, what every drug trafficker wants to do is they want to make a deal with the government because they've made all of their money. And basically, they say, let's open negotiations about how many years in prison I'll spend. These guys are thinking five years max, right? Just to put it in context. 
how much of my money do I have to give back to you in order to, we wipe this clean, I get to stay with my money, some chunk of change, and I give it back. So he starts asking, he sends out this video saying, I want to negotiate a surrender for me and my men. He actually addresses one video to the Pope and asks the Pope to get involved and says, would the Pope mediate between him and the government? So we've known that this has been ongoing. He's been putting out feelers about, can he hand himself over? The strict policy of the Colombian government is they don't negotiate with criminals. They say they'll negotiate with political actors, i.e. revolutionaries or even the far right death squads had a allegedly a political message. They can be negotiated with. A straight drug trafficker, they can't. Otoniel said that he did have a political ideology and therefore he should be able to negotiate. Many in Colombia suspect that there may have been some sort of agreement to hand over because when you look at it, apparently in the day of the operation, the only person killed was one soldier. You would expect in these missions more people to have died. One thing, though, that maybe what had happened is, I would suggest, is that maybe Otoniel thought something was ready and either he was lied to or he misread the situation because it looks like he's on a direct, not a direct, I should be very, I should speak more clearly, he's going to be extradited at some point soon, according to the Colombian government, to the United States. This is a case that's kind of like El Chapo. Once you get to the absolute top, you don't actually have much to negotiate. You, well, let me rephrase it. You have so much you can negotiate, but you don't have anyone bigger to roll over. And these prosecutors only look at it in those terms. They're just looking for the next big fish. Well, if they took a step back and said, wait, we can look into who were the politicians on his payroll? Who were the cops on his payroll? Who were the army? We could uncover this whole network, but they won't look at it that way. So they'll probably throw him away in prison for the rest of his life. I'm not saying he doesn't deserve that, but I, I doubt they'll really try and investigate as much as they could. Did anyone claim the $5 million bounty? That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. Uh, that would be interesting to know. Uh, the Colombian government, I've got to be honest, is not very good about bounties sometimes. So I was getting ready. This must have been in about 2008 or 2009. I was getting ready to interview a leading guerrilla. His name was Ivan Rios. And we were it was very difficult at that time to set up these interviews in the mountains and endless phone calls, but, you know, speaking in code. And we were getting ready to do it. And then the news came that his second in command had gone into the tent as Ivan Rios of the FARC was sleeping with his girlfriend, shot Ivan Rios in the head, shot his girlfriend in the head. Sorry to be blunt about this, but this is the reality of this world. Hacks off Ivan Rios's hand walks down the mountain looking for the closest army base, walks in and says, I'm here to claim the bounty for Ivan Rios. And these soldiers are kind of just embarrassed by the savagery in front of them. So they never know what to do with this gorilla. I can't remember his name. I can find out. I'll send it over to you. But it was kind of just like, God, this is actually what our policy is. This kind of disgusting, totally horrific disgusting. And I don't think they ended up ever paying him because they were just kind of like, this is too much. This is just psychopathic. Even for, even for a, a, an area that a lot of the stories you hear about are just seem to be just so far outside our realms of understanding. Clearly, Otoniel hadn't got a witch who could uh, cast a spell to protect him from 
the uh, the Colombian army, but 500, I think, special forces were involved in his arrest. And as you say, only one uh, died in what should have been a, a huge shootout. Um, he's facing, he's going to be accused of shipping cocaine, obviously, into the US, of recruiting minors and of exploiting children. Um, presumably there will be some witnesses brought to the US to give evidence, etc. If he's a trial, anything like Chapo, it will go on for a long time and um, could involve God knows what allegations about politicians, police and the judiciary. Um, but I have to say, Toby, when I saw the video of him being led out and all the uh, various soldiers and police posing for photographs with him, uh, he didn't look too bothered. And that was why a number of Colombians thought, oh, what's the deal here? Why is he giving this little smirk? Again, the problem with Colombia can be, and I say this as a devotee of the country, as someone who loves the country, the thin wall between reality and lies and cover-ups there is just, it's all this big mix. And so it's made people, I would say, sometimes overly conspiratorial, overly cynical. I think sometimes Colombians pride themselves on just, oh, no, you don't get it. You don't understand what's really going on. How naive can you be? So immediately you saw across social media, oh, no, this isn't real. You know, this is a deal between him and the government. Perhaps I could be wrong, but I don't know what the deal is going to be with Oponia. We have seen in the past drug traffickers end up in the United States and they've paid off some money to the government and they've got these um, sentences, kind of ridiculous sentences. I remember speaking with one drug, drug trafficker and said, look, if they send me over there, I'll do five years, I'll have to pay some money, then I'll be back here. So that has happened in the past. With Otoniel, I cannot see that happening. I think he's going to probably spend the rest of his life in a maximum security prison. The Colombians are certainly not talking about any deal. They're talking about moving him to the US as quickly as possible. When you're a drug trafficker and you're sent to something like the Supermax, in, in Colorado, I don't think you actually see sunlight if you are a high security prisoner for the rest of your life. I don't think your family get visas. I mean, that's it. You're done. You know, I mean, Otoniel's family ain't getting visas, you know. I mean, so he's going to live there without seeing sunlight for the rest of his life. I don't know what the deal is. These men in the past often prefer death. In fact, when the police surrounded his brother, Giovanni, that's what he shouts out. I'm a, I'm a soldier. I'm not going down. And it's kind of James Cagney moment. You know, he knows he's surrounded. So I would be surprised if he is going to. Um, now, one thing I will say about this, though, given the move, the president of Colombia said he wants to extradite him shortly because of security concerns, i.e., is there going to be a breakout or will the cartel try to kind of carry out a series of terrorist acts in order to pressure the government into releasing him. So the government has said they want to extradite him as, you know, not as soon as possible, but shortly. I would say the problem that some victims groups have said is that will the victims in Colombia get their day in court? Because when he goes to America, well, that court case is only going to be around um, on the drug trafficking, really. That's what they're going to be looking if he's tried in, what, the New York court. So if a mother, for instance, her son had been disappeared by Otoniel's group, that could give her some closure. And if he's just whisked away, she may never get that closure. And we all know these horrific stories of the disappeared. That is a wound that never, ever heals. Until you're told what happened, until finally 
it's it's a hard truth to hear that your son was killed, your daughter was drowned, whatever. But at least it's closure. You can begin that closure. If you don't know, you kind of live in this this up-down world of maybe he's dead. How did it happen? Oh, my God, it was probably worse than I think. Or maybe he's still alive. It's just an endless torture of these people. So I do hope the Colombian victims do get some sort of closure. But if he's whisked away too quickly, I don't see how they will. And finally, Toby, what's your views on you know, how much time, effort, money and resources are put into these capturing of these single individuals. Okay, they sit at the very top of these cartels. But, you know, if the same efforts were put into fixing things on the ground, um, maybe Colombia would be a better place. 100%. I believe that this really puts the kingpin strategy under the microscope. I believe, okay, Big win for the drug war. But is it going to have an impact? History shows no. Again, you know, Pablo Escobar was killed on a roof in 1993 of Medellin. And what's happened over the past 30 years? More cocaine than ever. Yes, the the answer is not to keep going after these kingpins. It's to start working with those who produce the coca that is turned into cocaine. Get people to stop producing that coca, let's help them grow pineapples, let's help them raise chickens, let's build infrastructure of roads, of bridges. That's the way to get this out. And also, another thing, we need to think about demand, because just as the world can look at Colombia and say, why are you producing more cocaine than ever before? I think Colombia has the right to turn to the world and say, what are you doing about lowering consumption in your countries? This business relies on demand. The the mafias spring up because of demand for this drug. Because people in the richest countries want to buy this drug, they oversee its production. But it's the black market that makes the cocaine so expensive. A kilo of cocaine in Colombia is $1,600. If you get that to New Zealand, because of the black market, that can become $250,000. It's the black market that makes men, monsters like Al Capone, El Chapo, Otoniel, millionaires, if not billionaires. What would Al Capone be without the prohibition on booze? Some street thug standing around on a corner, you know, bullying some prostitutes, running some numbers. What would El Chapo be? Again, some guy ripping off cars. What would Otoniel be? Some some neighborhood local psychopath, the town psychopath, yeah. But he wouldn't be a billionaire. It's the black market that does that. I, I don't know what the solution is in the long run regarding legalization. I'll leave that to other people. But right now, what you ask, let's work with the farmers to get them in Colombia to start growing other things. And that's something, to be honest, that recent Colombian governments, and these are all of the recent governments, have just simply not done. They've talked a good game, but when it comes to it, when it comes to sitting down and putting the money there for the farmers, it fades away quickly. Toby Muse, thank you very much. Thank you so much for the invitation. I always enjoy being here. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.